Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? host, Liz McGavro, and I have a really fun conversation for you today. So I'm here with one of my favorite people and fellow Wicked author, Barbara Ross. I wanted to bring her on to talk about all things cozy mysteries because Barb has just an impeccable way of talking about our genre that makes everything so much clearer and makes sense and just makes you understand every nuance. I just love the way her mind works. She's logical and brilliant and has a way of getting straight to the heart of things. We talk about how to think about cozies and their place in the mystery world. We talk about creating real characters and food and mysteries and what pisses readers off the most in our books. We also talk about book jail and how we both often end up in it. If you have no idea what that means, you have to listen to the episode for sure. Uh, But here's more about her. Barbara Ross is the author of the main Clambake Mysteries. Her books have been nominated for multiple Agatha Awards for Best Contemporary Novel, and have won the main literary award for crime fiction. Barb's novellas are included in holiday anthologies from Kensington. She's also written the Jane Darrowfield Mysteries, and her first novel, The Death of an Ambitious Woman, was published in August 2010. In her former life, Barb was a co-founder and chief operating officer of successful startups in educational technology. She and her husband, Bill, live in Portland, Maine. So there you go. Let's get right into our conversation. I can't wait for you to meet Barb. Barb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I, I know most people know you, but for those who might not, just tell us about yourself and your books and what you're doing these days. My name is Barbara Ross. I'm the author of the main Clambake Mysteries. There are currently 11 books and five novellas in the series, and the sixth novella comes out 
uh, January 23rd. It's called Easter Basket Murder. And the 12th novel comes out April 23rd. And it's called Torn Asunder. Awesome. And you have other books too, though. Don't forget I those. Do. I have two books in my Jane Darrowfield series, Jane Darrowfield, Professional Busybody and Jane Darrowfield and the Mad Woman Next Door. And my first book was The Death of an Ambitious Woman. Awesome. So I wanted to talk to you about so many things, but one of the things that I really love talking to you about is the whole world of cozies, right? Because there's a lot of nuances. The cozies get the shaft a lot of the time. And I think you have such a great way of talking about it. So um, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about like what they are, not what they're not. As I know, you always like to say, we don't define cozies by what they're not. Um, and then how you think they enhance the mystery genre. I sort of define them in two ways. One is that cozies are almost always a subset of traditional mysteries. So traditional mysteries means that the central question is who done it. And then in the cozy world, there are some other enhancements. It's almost always an amateur sleuth. You're going to find, honestly, exceptions to everything I'm going to say. But it's almost always an amateur sleuth, which means that the sleuth has some other job or profession besides detecting. It's often a female protagonist. I, I'm not going to get maybe 90% of the time, 85% of the time, a female protagonist. And the book, like, tra like traditional mysteries, takes place in a closed world. So it's never going to be the CIA or the Russian mafia or a Colombian drug cartel. It's going to be a situation where the victim and the perpetrator and the suspects and the sleuth are either known to one another or connected in some way. Yeah. And I think to your point, um, they people sometimes think about them as nothing that has any kind of substance, right? They, they're supposed to be cute. They're supposed to take place in a small town. Everyone's supposed to be friendly and eat some nice food. And then there's a little matter of a dead body and we'll get that out of the way and then we'll get back to, to life. But I think, you know, it, and you and I have talked about this a lot and all the wickets have talked about this a lot. They're supposed to still be about something, right? And that's something that um, Dennis Lehane always said that, you know, whatever you're writing, make sure it's about something. And I think people miss that cozies are about something. Yeah, I think that maybe you're true. People mix up theme and premise. So they'll very often say the theme is a bakery, mm -hmm. but the premise is a bakery. Yeah. And theme can be anything. I mean, I have books about where the theme is old friends. I have books where the theme is notions and ideas of home, notions and ideas of friendship or family. You know, all of the kind of big things in our lives play into cozies. There's no question. I was also very inspired by Dennis Lehane talking about this because he said once at Crime Bake, you were probably there, um, that you will never invent a new plot. 
that there are literally hundreds of hours of police procedurals on TV every week. And the odds that you're going to come up with a new plot are vanishingly small. So make sure your book is about something. And I, I loved that. Yeah. Me too. And I always took that to heart because I definitely didn't want to like my my biggest fear was not to be taken seriously. And mm -hmm. so and I know you your your first book, Death of an Ambitious Woman, was not a cozy. And so right. did you ever did you anticipate getting into cozies or how did that um, come? I definitely wanted to write a series. I love series. I I love series of books. I love series television. I love things where you get to see characters and places grow and change over time. So I definitely wanted to write a series. Um, so when it was put to me by my agent, the possibility of writing a cozy series, I was already very comfortable. I'm very, I love the traditional mystery form. I love the interconnectedness of the people. So I, while I hadn't really thought, oh, you know what I should be writing is a cozy, it didn't like not fit me in any way. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, a lot of this is a about a choice about where as a writer you want to spend your time. And I had no desire to spend my time in very dark places. I had no desire to torture children or, you know, have horrible sex killings. It's just not where I wanted to be most of the time. So for me, it was a very good fit. Yeah. I, I was happy to do it. Yeah. Your main clan bakes are like a favorite in the genre. They're definitely one of my favorite series, but I do think that you made an effort to try to push the limits, right. Of some of the, you know, what's expected in the genre. So talk, can you talk about that? Yeah, I do get that. Um, that sort of comment, this wasn't cozy and occasionally rarely, but not, um, not never by any stretch. And I think that's partially because, I really believe if someone's going to be killed, there should be a reason. Yeah. So if they cut in line at the library waiting to check out books, that's not a reason for them to be dead. So usually in my books in the past, not gorily described on the page, but in the past, there's a, a fairly large transgression that plays into the motive. So I think that's one way that my books maybe come off a little skewed toward um, the traditional end of, of cozy. I also don't sort of believe that the victim has to be the most unlikable person in the book. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, while the victim might appear to be unlikable at the beginning of the book, as you uncover the layers of who they are, you're going to discover either that there's a reason why they are the way they are, or that they weren't so 100% lopsided unpleasant. Um, so those are two of the ways that I don't like to, you know, sort of don't fit into um, some of the kind of lighter end of the cozy mold. However, I have no problem with that. And I, I do get, as I'm sure you do, Liz, emails from people about how comforting these books are. Yeah. 
I read this in a chemotherapy chair. I read this to my sister when she was dying in the hospital. I I get those. I this was my COVID binge. I mean, I get those all the time, and I'm sure you do too. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? Books serve different purposes in our lives, and there are times when we want to be comforted, and know that justice will be done, and that yes, the world will recover from whatever upset has has challenged it i'm also not crazy about revenge i i i definitely see revenge as a motive but i don't see it as justifiable yeah you know i i totally agree i i recently got a note from someone and i think i was having a bad writing day and i <laughs> i remember thinking like oh why am i doing this and then i got a note from someone who said you know um we read your book when my husband was in the hospital and it made a really stressful time that much easier and yeah it's lovely to get notes like that because you know that you reached at least one person right with all your hard right. work and you reached them at a dark time yeah. and made them feel better and that's like wonderful yeah. wonderful for sure and you know again to your point like i i lately i've noticed that my my bodies are coming later in the books oh, because I'm doing some, some setup with the victim because I don't want it to just, I don't, I, sometimes it, it does fit into the story. I'm trying to tell where, yep, you just meet this person. They don't seem like the best person and you know, then they're dead. But other times I feel like I have to show more of what's actually going on and, and get, have people have a chance to get to know the victim a little bit before they die. And I found that's occurring in, in my last few books and actually in the book that I'm working on now, which is kind of interesting. I've never gotten a response to that, though, that it's not cozy. So that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's interesting, too. I think that's true in my books as well. I think the um, body drop has moved later um, in the books. I think part of it is because you've built up a trust relationship with the reader. So they're willing to follow you further because they trust you to write a good book. Um, whereas when you're new, you never want people to be like, why am I reading this? What's it? So I think that's part of it. Um, but I also find my bodies are dropping later. On the other hand, for reasons, um, because I was working on the Wicked's newsletter, I pulled out a, my fourth uh, main clam bake mystery where the bodies dropped on the first page. And I was reading that scene and I was like, this is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing that. I like playing with the structure too. There's that yeah. book where the bodies dropped on the first page. There's the book immediately after. Oh, and the other thing about that book is um, you never meet the killer which is supposedly not playing fair, though I've never gotten a like furious email about that. I've gotten furious emails, but never about that. Mm -hmm. um, and the very next book, I think the body, it become the body dies before the book opens, but it isn't declared murder until you're like 60% of the way through the book. So mm -hmm. I do enjoy like mixing it up like that um, and th thwarting expectations. But again, to writers out there, maybe not in your first book when you're trying to get proved to an agent and a traditional publisher that you know what you're doing. Yeah, no, totally agree. Was book four The Claminator? Um, no, that was book two. <laughs> I love that one. That was still my favorite. <laughs> the charred foot falling out of the claminator. Yeah, which doesn't sound cozy at all, does it? Right. 
And also, isn't it great to go back and read something you wrote years ago and you're like, oh, this doesn't suck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you definitely bring like fresh eyes to it. Yeah. Um, and I had adapted that fourth book is called Fogged In. And here in Portland, Maine, the Portland stage had done a reading of parts of mystery books from several authors. And I was lucky enough once to be one of the authors. So I had adapted that front part, which meant in the adaptation, moving all kinds of dialogue forward and all kinds of things. So I wasn't thinking it was that great. So when I read it two days ago, I was like, oh, this isn't terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So you talked about, you know, getting furious emails about other things. So talk about some of that. What has surprised you the most about some of your, some of the responses to your books? (laughs) Well, I, I, One of the curious things about, and I don't think this is only Cozy's, I think it's really any series where people get very attached to the characters. Um, Boy, if you, you can kill dozens of people, (laughs) but if you mess with your main character's romance, you are in for a lot of mail. And I do do that in my series. So I I got a furious email yesterday and I, I wrote that book well, probably four years ago. So, wow. <laughs> so, so that's definitely one thing. Um, but I always find, I, I as, as you know, I got a very like, your too woke email about the last book, which was hilarious because it was the one before that that was really about politics, but it wasn't about politics along a partisan divide. So that's why I think there wasn't any email about that. And I was like, first of all, I didn't say that. A character said that. Like, and it was a hundred percent true to that character. And also it was a comment on a fictional world that I had created. So if I'm saying everybody in this world is this or that, I mean, I invented this world. So yeah. I am I feel my characters are entitled to make those observations. Um, but people reveal so much more about themselves in those kind of comments than it has anything to do with your book. Um in the romance genre, I got a really nasty email from someone who said she thought my main character was a psychopath. And, <laughs> um, but but there's a review of my very first book buried somewhere on Amazon where someone said, this is a book about two sisters who will never, ever get along. And I, it's not about that at all. <laughs> it's not even a little bit about that. And I, I remember reading that thinking... Um, my book's not about that, but I think I know what you should talk to your therapist about. (laughs) So people are always revealing, um, a lot of people say things like no one would ever do that. And I had a friend, a colleague, uh, who always said that when his mother said no one would ever do that, she meant no one who lives within 12 square blocks of here would ever do that. Yeah. I love it. A act at funerals is very both individual and ethnically and religiously contained. And boy, maybe no one in your family would ever do that. But believe me, people would do that. Yeah, no, totally. I'm really glad you brought up that woke thing, because I, I actually wanted to ask you about that. So okay. um, I so it's 
I, again, I feel like it's it kind of comes back to you, like you could probably get away with that in a thriller and nobody would even notice, right? That you Maybe. that someone had a had a had a commentary like that. So I think is it um I really like how you can break down, you did this on the blog, you broke down your response to that person, or even if it was just in your head, I don't know if you ever sent it to them, but just, no, I, how never, you... I decided not to engage. Which yeah, might have that's been, usually a good idea. Might've been maturity, might've been chickening out. I'm not sure which, but I just didn't feel it would be productive. She was furious. And um, as I said, it wasn't something I said. It was something a character said. The foundation for that character had been laid for 10 years. So, you know, yeah. you're not you buying had a, You had a great response about how, you know, your characters in books are supposed to be multi-layered people from different walks of life that have different reactions to the environment around them. And if you're not doing that, you're writing basically about pieces of cardboard, right? So... Um, and I think you also wrote a blog post once that was to me a little bit relatable about, um, why people's protagonists might be considered unlikable. And I think there were a lot of parallels in that to, you know, what you were talking about here. So can you just talk about how you create your characters and how, you know, does your environment define them or do you define them first and kind of put them in their environment? Like, how do you. That's a, such an interesting question. Um, well, in a series, the environment and half the cast exists when you start. So in that sense, I guess you're putting the characters into the environment or into the situation if you happen, if you've thought of the situation first. So I that's probably how that happens. My comment about um, people who get the reaction from agents and publishers or readers that their character is unlikable. When I'm critiquing manuscripts for um, new authors who very often are very accomplished, it, it's, you know, writing is so multi-layered, you have to learn how to do so many things. Um, so they may be really good at some things. So it's not like I'm reading a terrible manuscript, but the re mo reason most often that the amateur sleuth comes off as unlikable is because the writer knows what's coming. Even if you are a true pantser, you have some sense of what's coming. So if you had a friend who um, you was having a dinner party and you stumbled on a dead body and she started accusing all of her best friends, you know, questioning all of them, like, where were you? What were you doing in the kitchen? Did you know him before? that person would be a sociopath. I mean, so um, I always sort of say, take to, time to think about how a human being would react in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Take time to feel shocked, take time to feel bad. It doesn't have to be pages and pages, but don't just start running around trying to solve the crime the minute it happens. And I think People are so anxious to keep the plot moving. Sometimes they they jump the gun. And that's what makes usually what makes the, their protagonist unlikable. Sometimes the protagonist is just unlikable. And I always in those situations assume the author is unlikable. But that's probably okay. not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> like that, like a protagonist who are really judgmental mm. and sort of passing judgment on everybody around them and um, commenting on their bleach blonde hair or their, you know, fake boobs. And I'm like, 
eek. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because I had, there was one book in my Cat Cafe series where my initial readers both kind of came back and said, Maddie seems really angry in this book. <laughs> and I think I was going through a really like rough time and it was coming out in my character. <laughs> yes. And thank God they caught it, right? Because otherwise people would have been like, okay, we're not going to read about her anymore because she turned into a real bitch. <laughs> right, right, right. You do have to um, think about that. I am now sort of going through a phase of being able to spot people's pandemic books. Mm. And it's not, sometimes it's because research was so limited, travel was so limited that, you know, you get to the end of what Google Maps can tell you and what Wikipedia can tell you at some point. But in other cases, there's just this kind of uh, anxious, down feeling to the characters in the book. And I've gotten pretty good at being able to, you know, look at the copyright and then look back at when the book was written or completed and say, oh yeah, this, this is one of those. Oh God. I haven't, oh wow. I got to start looking for that. I haven't really, <laughs> I haven't really noticed that yet. <laughs> I had a run of like two or three of those this year. So it, it became very apparent to me. Yeah. So you've also done, so you've got your 12 or soon to be 12 books in the series, and you've also got some novellas that follow the same characters. Can you talk about that experience and how, how was it different for you from writing the full book, aside from being shorter, of course? <laughs> yeah, I was really lucky because my publisher asked me to be in these holiday collections of novellas that are all around a theme. So I have two Christmas novellas. I have two Halloween novellas and um, a um, St. Patrick's Day novella. And the one that's coming is an Easter novella. So pretty much that's the complete assignment. The publisher says, here's the theme, Easter Basket Murder, which is the one coming in January. And um, 25 to 30,000 words. And that's pretty much your complete brief. And you know that there are two other people working on those stories. Now, we tend to be very different, um, but I don't see their stories until I get the advanced reader copies. So that's always a little interesting. We do turn in a synopsis in advance. So I have faith that my editor would say if two were way too much alike. But of course, we're dealing with our own characters and our own settings anyway, though all three are in Maine. I love working in that length. I have um, had a problem in my life, all, all my writing life, that my short stories are too long and my novels are too short. So that 30,000 words seems to be a real sweet spot for me. I also love out of the six books, only one has six no novellas. Only one has a traditional structure. Mm. So in only one, is there a death and then sort of a sleuthing where you go around and talk to different suspects. The others are shaped much more like short stories so that there's a twist or a reveal um, or, you know, from the beginning what's likely happened and you're really interested in how the sleuth figures it out or the why. Um, so I enjoy all of that. I've really loved writing those. Yeah. Do you get as good of a response from your readers usually, or do they 
Well, you know, a lot of people don't like short stories because they don't find them to be as immersive as novels. And the really brilliant short story writers like Richard Russo or, you know, can in those, you know, very tiny little spaces suck you completely in. To me, that's the standard. Um, So some people are just like, I don't read them. And some people are like, I only read them. I don't read your books. Um, And, uh, but I think it's all the good responses are to me, the people who say I was as immersed in this as I would have been in a novel. That to me is a real compliment. Yeah. That's interesting. People will read the novella, but not the books. Well, they like the collections or they read holiday books or they're a big fan of one of the other two authors. Mm-hmm. And I know I have fans who do that, too. So when they're all packaged together, they'll read the others, but they won't go out of their way to to find them. Mm, I see. Yeah, I'm definitely one of those people where if I'm if I like a series, I have to read all of the things related to it. And yeah, I, <laughs> me too. So. I went like searching the universe once for a Ruth Rendell short story that I knew had to exist because there was something that happened between two books. And I'm like, there's got to be a story about this. <laughs> it turns out it didn't, but she was so prolific. There's so many short stories all over. And of course, it was before digital books. So they're you know, just finding them is a big deal. And I just read all the McCure and Slough House books. And then I had to read the novella collection because Mm -hmm. I just had to, whatever happened between the books, I need to know. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So Crime Bake, so at the time of this recording, Crime Bake is coming up uh, this coming weekend. And I'm sad that you're not going to be there. It's going to be so weird. Um, It's going to be so weird. I, I'm starting to have like little pangs of regret too, but um, this was the year for me to skip. I, I didn't have a role there. I'm not on any panels or anything. And we had things we had to do that weekend. So I won't be there, but I will really miss seeing everybody. As a matter of fact, that's the best part, right? Yes, is, is seeing sure. everybody and talking to so many people you have so much in common with and who understand your life. <laughs> yeah. And can have crazy conversations at dinner about how to get rid of a body without <laughs> people getting up and walking away. <laughs> right. Exactly. Try that with the with someone who's a non-mystery writer. That doesn't work out very well. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but so I'm on a panel about food in in mysteries and so at first i got really thrown by this because i'm like i mean i'm excited to do it but i was like oh my only series that has food in it is my well before i really thought it through my the only series that has like food and recipes in it are my is my first series which is the food is gourmet dog and cat food which (laughs) i'm gonna kind of be the odd man out on this panel but then i started thinking more about it and I, and really just the premise of the panel, how food kind of brings people together and, you know, kind of talking about the role of food and mysteries more so than like, what recipes are you cooking up? And I realized my whole Cat Cafe series is also about food and on some level, because there's a food portion of the cafe. And, you know, there's always a lot of coffee making and 
goodie making and eating while things are happening and mysteries are being investigated. When you create your world too, that you've created in the cat cafe mysteries is, you know, in order to give a sense of the world, it's peopled with ice cream shops and, and, you know, it's, it's a real place. So there are places to get food and eat food and yeah. Yeah. And like on an island, as you know, because your stories are set on an island too, there are specific places where you eat in the off season and specific places that are closed during the, you know, during the winter and and all of that. But so I wanted to talk to you about food and your mysteries and yours have recipes and really freaking good ones too, but you don't make them. Your husband Bill does. (laughs) Tell us about all that. And how, like, do you, did you know food was going to be included in yours? Did you want it to be, did you have to pay Bill a lot of money to get him to do the recipes? (laughs) Um, so when my agent originally, he wasn't even my agent yet at that point, pitched the notion of a clam bake, that was a hundred percent of what he said, that one word. Um, But because at the time, my husband and I had a house in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and there is a authentic Maine clam bake, the Cabbage Island clam bake that's run up there. I was like, you know, perfect. I'm on this. And as the conversation drew to a close, my agent said, you know what this is? And he I think he literally yada yada me. You know what this is? Yada yada. <laughs> cozy culinary mystery. Yada yada. And, you know, at the time I didn't have a contract. You're so eager. You know how that is. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yes, yes, yes. But then I realized, of course, that a clam bake is the same meal over and over and over and over. <laughs> and just as if you owned an ice cream shop, you would not eat ice cream three meals a day. Um, my protagonist was not going to eat lobster three meals a day either. Um, so I decided I, I was a little worried. I, I put the proposal together and didn't put recipes in it. And I really hoped my agent wouldn't notice. And he actually sent it out to like two publishers before he caught on. And he came back to me and said, <laughs> no, no, this needs to have recipes. So at my clam bake, they serve um, clam chowder for the first meal for, for the starter. And they serve blueberry grunt with ice cream for the dessert. So those were the two recipes I put in. I chased my mother for months trying to get her blueberry grunt recipe until she finally confessed it was James Beard's blueberry grunt recipe. And therefore I couldn't use it. So very nice main author, Kate Flora, gave me her mother's blueberry grunt recipe. And Bill, my husband, and we'll talk about this in a sec, did the clam chowder. So then I kind of used up everything I could do because the rest of it is like dig a pit in your backyard, start a fire, (laughs) soak tarps in salt water. I mean, these are not (laughs) instructions that people in downtown Chicago or rural Montana can follow. So then I decided, well, you know what? My characters have to eat. So I just tried to do recipes that were seasonal, that were related to Maine, that were related to whatever was happening. And and my husband, who is by far the superior cook in the family, what I would do is I would just tell him, this is a casual barbecue. This is a dinner in a fancy restaurant. It's spring, it's summer, it's fall. 
And then he would go from there and develop the recipes. There's always um, at least one lobster recipe in each book. And there's always one baked good, which I supply. He, I, through 10 years of writing this series, I never got him to bake. But um, so that's how I do it. And it does, I think, I don't know if you feel this way. It does make you more conscious of using more of your character's senses, of using their sense of taste, of using their sense of smell, of bringing, uh, it is a way of bringing characters together into one scene. So being more conscious of the food, I think helps me be a better writer. Yeah. No, I love that. First of all, I love how logical you are. You, your people just needed to eat. So let's give them some food. <laughs> and, you know, my, um, my first, I wasn't as logical in my first series. I kind of, I knew the recipes were there, but like you said, I was so eager and I knew it was a gourmet pet food, you know, series, but I didn't really think much about the whole recipe thing. I was just like, oh yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get <laughs> to then, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then the night before I turned, had to turn the book in, of course, you know, last minute, Lucy over here was still working on it. And I realized like, crap, I don't have any recipes. What am I what am I supposed to do now? So I had to like completely wing it that first time. And then I, I the universe sent me a guy that I met randomly who happened to own a gourmet dog bakery who agreed to be my consultant. And that's how I got around the recipes for the rest of that series. And in this series, I just kind of stick with coffee and, you know, some baked goods and, and all of that. And I don't have to put recipes in this one, which, which is great for me, but it, I do think, and, um, it, it, at least in the series, you know, the cafe, the, the cafe part of the cat cafe where people actually can eat food has been like a thing that's sort of evolved over the, over the series. So the cafe, the cat cafe started out in the middle of grandpa Leo's house and they were trying to, you know, navigate that. And now it's got its own little space and people are starting to come to it just to get coffee versus, you know, get coffee and pet cats. They, they actually are coming for the food now, which is, I never really planned that, but it's been kind of an interesting twist <laughs> that's occurred. Um, and it, it has been kind of fun to play with that without the pressure of having to do recipes too. Yeah. I, I wrote two books and I think, well, I think two books and all of the novellas take place in the off season because the novellas are pegged to holidays, which are Chris, Halloween, Christmas and um, Easterish. So the clam bake isn't even open. Mm. So I did for a couple of years have my character and her boyfriend run a dinner restaurant uh, <laughs> because yeah. was, it was a good thing for them to do, actually. Anyway, looking back on it. Yeah. And we get to hang out with Gus a little bit more, which was right, fun. Right. right. <laughs> so, um, so, all right. Can we talk about the Wicked Authors for a sure. minute? Because, all right. So we're both part of the Wicked Authors. We're a group of six women who not only blog together, but we kind of do this whole writing life together. Um, I actually just had Julie Henricus on, one of our fellow Wicked Authors. And we, of course, we're talking about this too. And and I said, you know, I feel like the reason why we just were able to celebrate our 10th blog anniversary is because we're actually friends as well. And we're not just, you know, other blogs have come and gone. So we're not just like that blog mates thing and nothing else. But can you give us your perspective on what makes a good kind of close knit group like this for some, I mean, blogs, you know, I don't know that there's that many new ones coming out 
at this point, but there are people who are still kind of getting together and trying to build a brand together. How do you think we made this work for so long? Well, I think that, first of all, your point is a good one, which is there's what you see on the blog, but there's also what goes on in the background. And um, Julie, as a matter of fact, Henricus always says, you write alone, but you get published in a network. You doing something not just alone, but that's difficult and uh, you're pretty much on your own. I mean, your editor or agent may have some things to say about what you're doing, but it's really on you. So having other people you can reach out to both about the craft and about the commercial parts and say, okay, this just happened. Am I crazy? Has been so important to me. <laughs> you see other blogs too that have like rotating casts. Yeah. Um and we've, the six of us as a core, have stayed all these 10 years, which is really remarkable, I think, yeah. really unusual. Um, and I think that's helped, too, in the sense that we've had that, that stability. And I also think in the beginning, we really embraced the cozy genre. In other words, we didn't try to push it away. We didn't say, oh, we write traditional mysteries. Um, we really were right out there saying this is what it is. We've backed off that a little because we have people writing paranormal. We have people writing historical, you know, as we as authors have branched out the blog has has gotten broader too. But I do think that willingness to just step up and not apologize and say it is what it is really helped to brand us in the beginning. Yeah. It's been it's been a wild ride. And our retreats, I think, have been really cool too. So once a year, um, for all most of the years except for the pandemic years, um, we head out to some somewhere on the East Coast and we have a retreat. And we spend three days together and we talk about the blog and we talk about, well, Barb helps us all read our royalty, royalty statements because nobody knows how to do that except for you. <laughs> and Barb talks about the blog numbers because nobody else is really that good at that except for you. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's definitely been, um, it's been educational too, from like just being around so many great writers who all approach the process differently, who all have different takes on the business, you know, who all can bring a level of sanity to something that may seem insane. It's just been, it's been great. Yeah, I, I agree. And what's been interesting to me about the retreats is how they've um, evolved. You know, mm -hmm. the first couple, we were focused hundred percent on craft. We were like, how in the world do you get, write a book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second year it was like, how in the world do you write a book on a deadline like this? <laughs> you know? But then as the book started to be published, it was, oh my gosh, how do I publicize the book? How do I support the book? And then, you know, a few years later, it was, how do I think longer term about my career? So it's been really fun to see how the conversations have evolved over this time period. Yeah. Yeah. And also, so I think 
I think you and I were the two that made book jail famous within our group. And I think it was at the very first retreat or maybe the second one. I was the one that was in book jail the first time, I think. So for those who don't know the term, book jail is when you have a looming deadline and you're not done writing it and you're not allowed to participate in any of the fun activities that might be happening around you (laughs) and you're banished to the living room while everyone else is having fun in the kitchen. Right. Everyone (laughs) else is in the kitchen gossiping (laughs) and eating pancakes and we're like, Liz, get out of here. Go sit in the living room and write your book. And I, I am often in book jail at home as well. Um, and it's always like, why can everybody go to the movies? And yeah. <laughs> why is everybody outside on this beautiful day? Exactly. Right. <laughs> it feels like detention. <laughs> but but I, I'm bringing this up for a reason, because part of part of why I always end up in book jail is because I do procrastinate and, you know, I've, I've definitely been working on this and I've gotten better, but I am always very last minute. So are, are you the same way? Like, how do you, how do you approach your, your writing, your process? Has it changed over the years? I think you and I are the most similar, definitely. And I do need that frisson of uh, tension to get to get me to commit to things, even if I think they're ridiculous. In other words, once you're kind of up against a deadline, you, you've got to stop all the second guessing and just get on with it. Mm -hmm. So definitely that little bit of anxiety, it can be too much. Like you can overdo it. If you've literally put it off to the point where it can't, the task can't be done, then you can have so much tension and anxiety. You can't do anything, but if you can play it just right, I have found that that actually does help me. I um, had a big birthday this year and I decided that my new life view was that of Popeye. I am what I am. (laughs) I love it. I'm calling it radical self-acceptance. Nice. So you would love, I would love to be a person who's finished with her book three months before it's due and sending it out to 12 beta readers, but I've kind of accepted that's not my process. And as long as things don't get so tense that, um, if I'm cold, if I have a cold, I can't make my deadline or, you know, my stress level is um, bad stress instead of good stress. As long as it doesn't tip over to that, I've just accepted it. It's part of me. It's part of my process. Yeah. I think I've been trying to do that more too. We are definitely like in that sense. Cause it usually like I, I do kind of have these lofty goals at the beginning, like, oh, I'm going to finish this at least a month early and get it to, you know, so-and-so to read for me. Usually I'm sending it to my editor for their first read and my beta reader at the same time (laughs) and figure I'll just incorporate all the comments at once. It'll actually save me time, (laughs) but yeah, yeah my um my my beta reader has been Sherry Harris, who's also one of the wicked authors. And first of all, I'm sending her pieces like yeah. hundred pages. <laughs> but second of all, she and I now have evolved to the point where I'm like, okay, if I can't get this into the draft I turn in, because my editor is very, very picky about 
typos and cut and paste problems. So sometimes like touching things is worse than um, fixing things is worse than not fixing them. So I have my new mantra is, well, you know, if I can't get these in when I turn it in, I'll I'll get it in when I get the editor's comments back or I'll get it in at the copy edits. And Sherry actually kind of accepts that now and rolls with it. She's like, oh, I know you'll deal with it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There have been times where she's had to real time edit for me too. Like that, the 2019, I think it was 29, no, 2017, the 2017 positively organic crisis where I had like three weeks to write, you know, more than half of the book because I had taken such a bad turn and couldn't get out of it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have to say I've only been late once, like significantly late. Um, I'm not sure my editor would agree with my assessment, but in my (laughs) universe, I've only been late once. And that was after the election of 2016. And I just, yeah, I was a mess. Yeah. Um, Well, that's understandable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought it was understandable. My editor wasn't quite so salient. (laughs) (laughs) You're funny. All right. So I have one more question about business because I know that that's your thing. So you're always the one breaking down the business for us in a way that probably that I know I could never probably see right until you kind of pointed out. So talk about the business of publishing today and what someone new coming in needs to really know to be able to understand any of it. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, So let me say this about people who are new. Um, what I try to preach to people is that you wrote a book, millions of people say they're going to write a book and never write that book. So please don't ruin this for yourself. Enjoy the fact that you wrote a book and celebrate every milestone from getting an agent to getting a publisher, or if you're self-publishing from, finding a cover to having a release date um, to putting it up on one of the e-tailers. I mean, try not to make yourself miserable because I have seen so many people who whose books maybe don't reach the level of success that they expect or hope for. And they just beat themselves up to the point where they can't enjoy it. I got an email from a friend in that situation the other day, and she didn't say how dire it was. She definitely has a second book in the series coming out this spring. So it's not like it was so bad that her contract got canceled, but whatever it was, she wasn't meeting her own expectations. So I believe that you can only outrun a your publisher's distribution capabilities. So depending on the size and type of publisher, how many bookstores they can get your book into and the intrinsic um, resonance of your book in the culture in that moment, you can only outrun that by 10 or 15%. So you can go all over the earth and write blog posts and be do book trailers and... Um, do TikTok videos, you can run yourself ragged and make yourself crazy, but it's it's only going to make a difference in the margins. And you would probably, unless you really enjoy doing all those things, because some people really do enjoy them, you would probably be much better off um, 
writing another book. And the other thing that I say is sort of look at what you can control and what you can't control. So I have an ironclad rule that I get rid of all my advanced reader copies because I can control that. I can approach people with them. I can give do giveaways for my readers. I, I can make sure those all get out in the universe. But I can't control whether those people really do reviews or whether those reviews are good. So you need focus on what you can do and let the rest of it go because you accomplish this amazing thing. Don't don't make it miserable for yourself. I mean, as I said, everyone, you know, at some time or another said they were going to write a book. How many times, Liz, have people come up to you at a party and said, oh, I would write a book if I had the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I have this great idea for a book. Maybe you can write it for me. <laughs> right. And we'll split the royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Which means we'll go out to dinner together. Right. Or maybe a coffee. <laughs> I, I always want to say something like, I have a magic machine that makes time. And that's why I have the time to do this. <laughs> I love it. But no, that's really great advice, even for people who've been in the business for a while, because sometimes we do forget, like the best thing we can do is just keep writing versus like you said, where I do be my, like, I'm not on social media as much as I should be and for a lot of reasons. Like even with my own business stuff, I'm, I'm constantly beating myself up that I'm not doing it. And part of it is just scheduling the time to do it, but also part of it's realizing like, yes, that's important, but what's going to move the needle the most as far as my time is concerned. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, All right. So just to bring it back to cozies, I know the cozies are going through a little bit of a rough patch right now, but what do you see for the future of them in the industry? You know, if you take the cozy back as so many people do to Agatha Christie and Miss Marple, You've now got over a hundred years. So I don't see cozies going away. I see them evolving. I see them already speaking to more diverse communities. Um, The assumption that only nice white ladies want to read about nice places and nice people is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Plenty of people could use that relief in their lives. Um, I see them getting more diverse and I see them tackling different issues. And even if you go back and read older ones, you'll see that they've evolved over time and um, that the characters very often have more modern attitudes and even in historicals are more um, sensitive about what they're describing. But uh, I don't see them going away. I just... I don't. I do find it interesting because I was one of those people of that generation who kind of evolved from Nancy Drew to Agatha Christie to Dorothy L. Sayers in sort of a logical progression. And so many young people I know um, grew up on Harry Potter and write fantasy. Mm. So I do find it interesting that what people read and love reading can shift over time. Mysteries have always been very lucky to have a huge readership, uh, but but I don't see them going away. Yeah, 
No, that's good news because so many people do love them, right? And I, right. I have actually a writer in my membership who started out really wanting to write fantasy, but um, after being around a lot of cozy writers and reading more of them, now she's all in. She wants to write cozy. She's actually coming to Crime Bake this weekend. So. Oh, fun! Well, you know, there's the world building aspect. Um, there is a fantasy aspect in that, to some degree, when the world is restored to order, it's it's uh, probably a nicer place than um, than the world we actually live in. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all the skills that you get. It's so many of the skills are transferable among the genres. If you can create good characters, if you can plot, if you can write a good sentence, all those things matter. And the world building is a fun part of both fantasy and cozies. Totally, totally agree. Barb, thank you so much for being here. I always love chatting with you and you always have such awesome wisdom to drop on us. So thank, oh, you. thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this and it's, I'm in Maine. So a, it was snowing this morning when I oh, oh, yes, disgusting development, then it rained <laughs> and now it's practically dark. So yeah. I know it's crazy. It's it's not snowing here, but it rained all day and it's dark here as well. So not good. <laughs> not good. So we should go read a cozy and get some tea and just try to have a nice night. It is cozy <laughs> weather. No question about it. <laughs> Thanks, Barb. All right. Take care, Liz. Great to see you. You too. So that's it for this week, friends. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you'll check Barb out in all the places on her website, on the socials, and definitely read the main Clambake series if you haven't. It's awesome. One of my all-time favorite series. And also, as always, I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. Message me on Instagram or message me through my website, kateconti.com. And I hope you're following the podcast so you never miss an episode. That would be amazing. If you love it, please do it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.